Welcome to another edition of American Countdown. Tonight we're going to be discussing how Bill Gates manipulates the media. Guess who fact-checks Bill Gates? And who fact-checks the various accusations and allegations concerning Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and their activities in the health arena in particular? Well, PolitiFact and other organizations, and we're going to uncover who it is that's funding the fact-checking organizations that are supporting and substantiating Bill Gates and trying to rebut any accusation and allegation against him. But before then, let's first talk about the end of Chaz, how Chaz got chopped. The uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or the Capitol Hill Occupied Property or whatever other label they gave themselves that lasted almost three weeks inside the city of Seattle, the police finally went in and rather quickly were able to remove the local uh, occupiers, the would-be warlords, and restore the that area of the city of Seattle back to the population that actually lived there and does business there and for the people of the city of Seattle. It showed that they could have always done that, and that will, of course, further support and substantiate the lawsuit that's been filed against the city, which we'll uh, detail some of the legal theories about. But uh, before that, it was an article I wrote today for RT, uh, which you can find at RT.com, which is about how Chaz got the chop. Social Justice Animal Farm goes to the slaughterhouse. Chaz got chopped. America's shortest-lived revolutionary government has already folded. What else could you expect from rebels shaped in safe spaces, tutored in social media, and trained in street theater? Che ain't a t-shirt, kids. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone even went through a post-colonial-like name change to the Capitol Hill Occupied protest before Seattle police finally woke them up around sunrise and retook the land for the city of Seattle. This secessionist sequel to 1860 looked more like Escape from New York, the film by John Carpenter, than Antifa Utopia. Begging outsiders for food and medicine while blocking customers and vendors from local homes and businesses, exceeded even the Grant Park 1968-like naivete of their generational forebears. For those who may not remember, in 1968, the left took over Grant Park in Chicago outside the Democratic National Convention, believed they could influence the uh, outcome of that convention away from the nomination of Hubert Humphrey after the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson deciding he would not run for re-election, and they met the Chicago police of Mayor Daley instead. Many of them thought that the beatdown they received that uh, during the uh, convention, in fact, the beatdown was witnessed by an uh, unusual combination of people sitting up in their hotel room, uh, Pat Buchanan and Norman Mailer. Indeed, if you want to read a really good book or several uh, books on how conventions operate and about conventions from a sort of literary journalist like Norman Mailer, then uh, those his books are some of the best on the convention of 1964, the conventions of 1968, and the conventions of 1972. Indeed, he gave some particularly apt advice for how you select a vice presidential candidate, and he's saying that the combination should, should sound like a, uh, like a business firm, or a law firm, accounting firm, something that... Uh, uh, says uh, quality and credibility in the in the branding just by the last name. He wisely forecasts the disaster 
of Hillary Clinton in 2016, picking someone with the last name Kane. So not only did that in, that uh, bring back the image of Kane and Abel, it also brought back the image of someone needing a cane, as in having such poor health, they need to have a cane to walk. Uh, so Kane was a particularly uh, a disastrous example of the warning that Norman Mailer gave not to pick a vice president with a bad name. Well, now apparently Joe Biden is considering the mayor of Atlanta, who's named Bottoms. So the, uh, the actual uh, label of potential of the Biden ticket will be Biden Bottoms. Uh, needless to say, that would clearly fail the Norman Mailer test as well. But the uh, that Grant Park was the last time, to a certain degree, you saw the left try to take over part of a city or a community and think they could be successful in doing so and instigating a Bastille-like revolution. And it didn't turn out that way in 1968 for Grant Park, nor did it turn out that way for the folks and in Chaz. Indeed, real revolutions appeal to history. They source their support to indigenous populations, and they train their team in physical survival and self-sufficiency. Real revolutionaries are not nurtured in safe spaces, tutored by Twitter, an expert only in street theater. Antifa Stan knew none of this and exposed the fundamental weakness of this new breed of would-be leftist revolutionaries. The only court of public opinion they can win is the one on social media where big tech big brother can slant the playing field like mummy and daddy did when they were kids. But upset Chardonnay hour at the mayor's house in Seattle and no more milk and cookies for the kitty revolutionaries. Or in this case, city blocks, city provided concrete barricades and portable toilets to play revolutionary for the would-be occupiers of Chaz. The insane internal contradictions of intersectionalist idolatry quickly undid what little effort at governing the Chaz attempted, devolving into an orgy of unintended Orwellian comedy. Chaz tried a social structure con constructed on a reverse hierarchy of oppression, where the gold medal winners depended upon ancestry, biology, or self-identification of chosen sexual status while the blood libel losers per, uh, performed public self-humiliating, self-immolating rituals of cultural revolution-style struggle or inquisition-esque confessions of wrong-thing culpability. The only thing missing from Chaz was the $600-per-hour corporate consultant there to teach them about their secret guilt for blood libels they bore from their ancestors. For that, you can just read White Fragility. This, of course soon devolved into extortionate demands based on skin color, with reparations of $10 from each non-African-American to each African-American in jazz, and then crumbled into resegregation by race, restricting resources by race, skin color, and ancestry, inclusive of the necessary collectivist land controls. This included a local farm for blacks only in jazz. This was indeed a social justice animal farm. The power structure of the country, formerly known as Chaz, dissipated just as quickly as the twinned ideological pillars of intersectionalism and anarchy, contradicted by mob rule in fact and safe space developed psychologies, 
prevented any agreement of delegated expertise and governing amongst the Chaz populace. In, instead, the mob took over before those with disparate private power began to dominate. As the mob reigned, another weakness in the Chaz emerged. And the, the and it's, it's 1984-like propensities, as detailed famously in the great book by Orwell, towards suppression of dissident ideas and dissident individuals. Chaz mobs attacked street preachers, flag wavers, and investigative reporters, often banishing them by force. Censor by mob, the first and foremost censor in human history, before it turned its aim on its own. When cancel culture consumes its patrons in a Stalin-worthy purge of a contemporary reign of terror, who is left? Indeed, when you see your country as a safe space, this outcome was inescapable for Chaz. When you couldn't play outside except on a play date, as parents' fear of kidnapping a generation ago shrank open play on the public streets and embedded this safe space culture from a very young age in an entirely new generation, when you can't talk about ideas on a college campus, safe space is prohibited when not deplatforming de dissidents in the name of squelching fascists. And when you must self-censor daily in the workplace and on social media, lest ye be banished from the digital public square, defrocked and fired from your job. Then you could preview a generation not exactly built for revolutions requiring survivalist skill sets. Without any delegation of authority to anyone within the group, an authority further undermined by racial and identity bases for power in the first place, the power in Chaz soon shifted to where it always does, where there's such a vacuum. Those with the power of force. Warlords emerged. The security forces of the Chaz depended upon a movement rooted in ideological and temperamental anarchy, staffed by millennials and Zoomers, consumed by police hatred and cancel culture. A police-hating group is going to police well? Probably not. Know who both hates the police and is accustomed to exercising force? Criminals. And so it was the criminals who seized control in Chaz. Soon the stories of rapes and robberies began. A group of business owners and residents filed class action suits detailing the horrors, and young black men in Chaz turned up dead. The ultimate insult? Upsetting the mayor of Seattle, who saw the summer of love turn into Escape from New York, Seattle style. That's when finally the police came in. In a time of safe spaces, social media, and psychologically pampered generations, untrained in either survival or and untutored in basic history, the country formerly known as Chaz was no Paris Commune of 1848 or St. Petersburg of 1917. Viva what revolution? The mob wanted to see their adversaries chopped, French Revolution style, chanted it on social media. But it was the Chaz that got chopped. For these play-at-revolution moments and movements, maybe chop was an appropriate name change after all. The idealism of the young Twitterati met the guillotine of governing reality in Chaz. And that's how Chaz got chopped. 
Now, the lawsuit that has been filed against the city of Seattle is predicated on the city's complicity, knowing culpability, aiding and abetting the establishment of Chaz. So business owners and residents join the suit, coming from a wide range of political and ideological viewpoints. The suit goes out of its way to not be politically incorrect. I wouldn't necessarily have pursued that path, but given who the plaintiffs were and given the venue is in Seattle, it's understandable because their focus is on the culpability of the city in perpetuating Chaz in the first place. Normally, you cannot sue a city or state for or any government in the United States for simply failing the duty to protect. That is because generally there is no duty to protect anymore, unfortunately, in the American legal system. Instead, you have to show a special relationship. Now, a special relationship usually arises in the custodial context, and not just in the cases of arrest or those that are imprisoned, but also those who are in state custody for some other reason. Certain cases, such as foster care. Other examples are those who are institutionalized due to mental illness, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes involuntarily. In those contexts, that can give rise to a duty uh, of the state to take care of the individual who is in their control. But as a general matter, there is no duty to protect unless it arises from some particular court order, like an order of protection in certain cases, such as in certain kinds of domestic violence cases. But generally, if the police simply fail to do their job, there's nobody for you to sue, even if the mayor is the one who orders them not to do their job. Now, the exception to that is if the city creates it in the first place. It's called a state-created danger doctrine. So if the state creates the problem that causes you the harm, then you can bring suit. Now, it's not always easy. For example, there are state-created amusements and recreation centers and schools that have been held immune from liability. Uh, even when horrendous acts take place due to their extraordinary recklessness or gross negligence. The uh, Supreme Court and other courts have refused to allow any legal remedy in those contexts, more often than not. However, if there's overt culpability, overt complicity, as was evident here by the various ways the city facilitated the creation of Chaz, promoted it, and then protected it, then that is a different animal altogether. And here, the best evidence they have comes from the tweets and public statements of the mayor of the city herself, who could not help herself but to get into Twitter fights with the president, which exposed the degree to which she was openly aiding and abetting the establishment of Chaz. So that is why those business owners will have a better chance to get at least into the discovery stage of a case than would be typically the case in comparable context and other circumstances. So that is the update tonight for the Chaz, uh, and the apparently tonight there's still efforts by some of the protesters to retake the property, retake the land, but that is unlikely to be availing now that the city understands the political and legal consequence of it embracing this country within a country. In the same context, we have the other aspect of what's happening in the country in terms of the pandemic politics as more and more politicians rush to push lockdown logic once again, even trying to cancel July 4th. Someone to cancel July 4th for political reasons, so much so that the federal government is creating a special force to protect statues around 
the United States in fear that on the day meant to celebrate the United States, there will be a group of people trying to destroy the statutes that recognize and memorialize and commemorate its history. That effort to sort of cancel July 4th is part of a broader ideological movement to push a very different approach on the United States. Indeed, as the Epoch Times and others have identified, it's a Chinese mindset that has been adopted in response to the pandemic. And in that capacity, I, there was a recent discussion that I witnessed where people were trying to figure out whether the Chinese communists were still communists, given that they have embraced a form of state-driven capitalism for the last quarter century. What that reveals is a lack of understanding of how Marxists think. The core belief of Marx was that communism could not occur in a feudalistic or from a feudalistic society. So he believed that communism could only arise from a late stage of capitalism. Indeed, he saw capitalism as a necessary intermediary. And that's a very important point to understand about the communist ideology and its intellectual origins and understanding and explanation of the world, is that they believe that you can't have communism until you have capitalism. And even though the only successful communist revolutions in the 20th century around the world all took place in agrarian, quasi-feudalistic societies, proving that Marx was wrong in terms of his predictive capacity about where communist revolutions would emerge, the failure of communism to work in those societies was highly educational to the Marxist intellectuals and reinforced their belief, which was Marx's original belief, that you had to have capitalism before you could have successful communism. The Chinese sent a bunch of uh, experts and intellectuals and academic types and government researchers to go to the Soviet Union right after the Soviet Union collapsed. And they had two things informing the communist intellectual view in China. One was the abominable, repetitive failures of Mao. He had the Great Leap Forward, ended up being the Great, Great, Great Leap Backwards, as millions died from starvation, from the insanity of what he was trying to do. Then the Cultural Revolution killed more, and they only finally put an end to it when he finally died sort of like Stalin's insanity in Russia. So they had the Mao failure experiment where they went backwards economically for decades. And then they witnessed the complete collapse of the Soviet Union and its Eastern European allies. So they went and studied, and, and their conclusion was, consistent to Marx's original hypothesis, was why did Mao's system not work? Why did the Soviet Union fall apart? It was because they were feudalistic societies unready incapable of forming a communist utopia. So that is why your hardest core communist adapted and adopted to a very capitalist ideology, though state-driven, state-controlled, in China beginning in the 1990s. It is not because they have at all abandoned their communist ideology. It is solely and wholly because they believe this intermediary stage of capitalism is necessary as a predicate to bring about the communist revolution that they still deeply and thoroughly believe in. That is why they see no contradictions from their form of statism and capitalism to their ideals of a communist government. In the same degree, we have someone who has continued to push his own ideological agenda on the country and on the world, 
which is Bill Gates, through the Gates Foundation, which is now the world's largest private foundation, worth well over $40 billion, and actually growing in wealth constantly and continuously over the last decade and a half, despite giving away funds, because of its unusual structure and how it has an investment component with its uh, charitable component. And we have someone like Bill Gates who's been correctly criticized by a wide range of critics outside of the gatekeeper, the gated institutional narrative, pointing out that the Gates Foundation has basically co-opted most of the public health in the Western world. The number two giver to the World Health Organization right behind the United States is the Gates Foundation. Even Politico, in its Europe. Uh, its European publication in 2017 detailed the scope and scale of Bill Gates' co-option of the World Health Agenda. And then you have the particularities and peculiarities of Bill Gates' own ideological obsessions, his obsession with overpopulation, his support of things like death panels, his focus on Africa. Uh, many of these things show signs of what the Rockefeller Foundation, which has often been an ally of Bill Gates in this, or George Soros with the Open Society has often been an ally with Bill Gates in this, which is the desire to limit the number of African and Asian and Latin and American lives through population control and, and using vaccines in part as the means to accomplish that by their own express uh, explicit statements. What's notable about this is that when anybody raises a question about Bill Gates, Somehow you'll see a fact check from somewhere. Usually you can trace it and track it back to PolitiFact, uh, but it will often be reported in other, well, other parts of the press that will claim and suggest that uh, any criticism of him is totally wrong and false and fake news. Now, there's a certain style of approach that they employ, and usually they do what's called a scarecrow argument in philosophy. What that is is you create a fake argument that, caricatures what the actual claim is so that it's easier to knock down and that it's not a real representation of the criticism. That's one of the games that they play. Other times they'll take an opinion statement and try to pretend it's a factual statement when it's not as a way to try to debunk criticisms of Mr. Gates. Well, for this, it's useful to know who is behind the biggest fact-checking organization in the West? PolitiFact. Well, PolitiFact is run by an by the uh, Pointer uh, Organization, the Pointer Institute for Media Studies. And for that, it's useful to look at who this Pointer Institute for Media Studies is. If you go to influencewatch.org, they do a lot of details about a range of reported charity activities out there and charitable organizations and who's behind them, who's associated with them, who's affiliated with them, what their history is, what some of their statements are. Well, the Pointer Institute for Media Studies is a another quote-unquote nonprofit journalism institution located in St. Petersburg, Florida. It owns and controls and publishes the Tampa Bay Times. It previously published the Congressional Quarterly. It, its primary, its principal operation these days is PolitiFact, which they launched in 2007. As they note, 
They go into details about what this organization is about, what they're dedicated to, and the long history of criticism associated with them. As they note, PolitiFact started as a, quote, fact-checking election year project, which was only going to rate the statements of political candidates based on their perceived accuracy. But it has since expanded into multiple states and multiple locations. There's even It even has a relationship with a range of other so-called fact-checking entities uh, and sites across the world. Now, it, the question is, uh, so who, who funds PolitiFact? Well, before we get there, we'll talk about how people have done detailed analysis of PolitiFact, found that they often are not uh, addressing facts, often addressing scarecrow, scarecrow arguments. And then if you put it just through any sort of objective test, you find that it consistently favors one the left over the right politically, and that this is evident in who it checks, how it checks them, the way it checks them, uh, to such a degree that they once tried to pretend that President Obama's statement that if you've got a health care plan that you like, you can keep it, was really completely true in terms of what actually happened with Obamacare only years later when it be, was be, uh, an example of how laughably false their claims could be, did they ever end up retracting it. Notably, Pointer has been involved with PolitiFact in attempting to blacklist a certain a dissident independent publications and sources of information. So, for example, in April 2019, Pointer posted an unnews list of 515 news websites that it wanted to tell the world were, quote-unquote, unreliable. Of course, when people started looking at the list, it quickly came under attack because the list itself was unreliable, because it used poor methodology. And it was so poor and so politically suspect that they had to, in fact, completely retract it. It turned out that their original source for it was the Southern Poverty Law Center. So that's the sort of mindset and mentality that you have at the Pointer Institution to such a degree that a wide-ranging group of publications and foundations and journalists and investigators say it is an unreliable organization itself, Pointer and PolitiFact. So then the question becomes, who exactly is uh, backing and supporting it? Well, if you just do a search, by the way, as to PolitiFact's relationship with Bill Gates, you'll see that it, it almost once a week recently, and at times at once a month, it overwhelmingly just comes to the defense of Bill Gates, criticizes any criticism of him. It tends to caricature what the criticism is. It often misstates what the facts are. To just give one illustration of this, when there was a good report by the Corbett Report about Bill Gates, uh, the very uh, – and joined by people like Robert Kennedy Jr. making criticism of Bill Gates, the PolitiFact decided to check a whole bunch of the claims related to him without talking about the sourcing it to the Corbett Report. It was an indirect way to attack it by attacking instead, say, a Facebook post or a meme or somebody else's statement that they could more easily caricature. And so in that capacity, they've come to Bill Gates' defense and make it sound like every criticism of Bill Gates is just made up, is just invented, is just a bunch of nonsense. So you wonder, why do they have this obsession with protection of Bill Gates? Well, for that, it's useful to go to the Bill Gates Foundation. Remember, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, is, the, as we've noted, the, most, the wealthiest foundation in the world. And it's notable who Bill uh, the, the foundation supports. One of the goals of the foundation 
is media development. As this article in SEMA.NED.org uh, reports, Gates media projects topic priorities include the Gates political ad, uh, agenda items. Gates has a particular interest in content that could fall into the context of media for development or content to influence outcomes. For example, in Europe, as the migrant influx became a public policy issue, the Gates Foundation supported four media outlets to, quote, report in an informed way that explains the complexity of the issue, to inform audience about what is really behind the uptake of refugees. So if you're wondering why some of the leading publications of the world simply refuse to question or criticize the Gates Foundation or Bill Gates and consistently come to his defense, by caricaturing any criticism of them and falsely giving fact checks that are not checks of any facts at all often, and even when they are, misstate the facts or decontextualize relevant information, well, this is partially why. Bill Gates Foundation in 2017 supported El Pais, The Guardian, Le Monde, and Der Spiegel to each track various groups and, and other political activities that they wanted to support for a more open immigration policy. The foundation focuses not only on supporting content creation, but increasingly, a staff member said, aims to test how far journalism is willing to go towards a stronger relationship toward the audience. And what they mean is basically creating the narrative, shaping the narrative. Indeed, the Gates Foundation gave a $550,000 grant to The Guardian, uh, in 2016 to focus on homelessness issues it wanted to highlight for its own political agenda and objectives. So that gives you some context of what the Gates Foundation does. Well, if you go to the largest funders of Pointer, the key backer for PolitiFact, you'll find a whole bunch of leftist institutions, MacArthur Foundation, McClatchy Foundation, the Newmark Philanthropies, the Becker Charitable Trust, the Omidyar Network, George Soros' Open Society Foundation, the, uh, the Charles Koch Foundation on sort of the corporatist right, the Democracy Fund, the Google News Initiative, uh, the McCormick Foundation. So you find all of these institutional groups, and that tells you why PolitiFact is on both the left and protecting left institutions especially. But what's interesting is what they don't currently report on their donation list. What they don't report on their list is any donation from the Gates Foundation. Well, for that, you'd have to separately research the relevant issues. And here's an uh, article from the Gates Foundation. And who is the Gates Foundation backing? In November of 2015, to improve the accuracy in worldwide media of claims related to global health, $382,997 just in November of 2015. To whom? to the pointer institution, the funder and founder and operator of PolitiFact. So if you wonder why PolitiFact is constantly and consistently protecting the Gates Foundation, maybe it's because that's where they're getting their money. Indeed, from an article written in a different Tampa Bay publication titled, The Pointer Institute and that announces initiative to fact-check claims about global health. The Pointer Institute for Media Studies launches a new initiative to fact-check claims about global health. 
through a partnership with fact-checking websites, PolitiFact, which they control, and AfricaCheck. Indeed, since then, they've created a bunch of others. And who funded it? The entire thing is funded, quote, by a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Their goal? To make sure people don't have misunderstood or distorted impressions of issues related to public global health. They wanted to make sure that false claims were those making them were held accountable. And they wanted to provide the media and the public with context about complex issues. They note that, in fact, they've been receiving multiple donations from the Gates Foundation over the years. And that the Gates Foundation is integral to the activities taking place. So there you see the reason why you're seeing all these fact checks backing Bill Gates is because these people are literally paid by Bill Gates. That's what's happening. That's how it's happening. And that's why it continues to go on in that same path. Indeed, if you dig in, there's uh, an article that was printed or a study that was done by the University of London. And you can find it at the City Research, uh, the City University of London Institutional Repository. It's research online. And it actually did a study in 2016 entitled Foundations, Philanthropy, and International Journalism. The subtitle being Ethical Space, the International Journal of Communications and Ethics. And what they point out is amid tumbling circulations and declining advertising revenue, guess who's emerged as the critical source of funding for quote-unquote public interest news? Private foundations. A recent Foundation Center report found that there were more than 12,000 media-related grants totaling a staggering $1.8.6 billion to various quote-unquote domestic news organizations and operations, and especially to fact-check organizations. It notes that the Guardian's global development website is almost all started by funds from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations. And it notes how the Gates Foundation has been particularly influential in creating and shaping fact-checking on their own activities. They note that there's been, that inevitably this leads to influencing the content of news, the objectives of news, and the yardsticks by which those news is measured as accuracy. They go through a short case study of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the ways in which the organization has implicitly and explicitly shaped news and fact-checking about international development. They talk about this being a relatively new phenomena, and that while pro you know, previously you may have had billionaires backing newspapers, everybody kind of knew about that, now you're to a place where instead the various organizations doing the fact-checking, doing the investigation, are being often secretly funded by it. An examination of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provides evidence that foundation funding shapes development news content and shapes journalistic practices. The foundation provides substantial funding to journalists and news organizations, much of which is targeted to their core areas of concern. This is primarily channeled through large grants to existing media, for example, the Guardian and competitive grant rounds for journalists working on issues of concern to Bill Gates. A large portion of the funding targets health reporting. They fund the Global Health Beat on National Public Radio. They gave uh, oh, millions in grants 
to various fellowships for, quote, for journalists to develop information and report accordingly. Indeed, the Gates Foundation places a premium on impact. Its funding schemes make it explicitly clear that its objective is agitating for change, not disseminating or analyzing information. One of the foundation's flagship grant schemes is, quote, the, the Innovation and Development Reporting Grant Program. The grant itself says you're, that your project must have a goal. It must be very specific. We want the projects and stories we have to have an impact. And for this reason, it is important for us to know what you are trying to achieve. They have funded projects, almost over 80 new, quote, unquote, news projects have actually been the privately funded projects of the Gates Foundation. One particular goal of the Gates Foundation, according to this study, is to change the narrative around global health issues and to foster, quote, a more positive reporting of success stories. It notes that it wants to have people tell the world, and they're looking for proposals that, quote, debunk cynical views about the effectiveness of the programs that the Gates Foundation is doing. California-based Link TV was awarded a $2 million grant by the Gates Foundation to create a digital video library that spots the progress on the issues and activities of the Gates Foundation or that the Gates Foundation cares about. They give millions to travel for journalists around the world. A number of commentators have expressed concern that journalists receiving funding from the Bill Gates Foundation might not be willing to criticize the foundation's work in their reporting. And, of course, what he finds is that there is a plenty of evidence to support that. At this point, though, he notes, we don't know the full scale of the evidence because, quote, there has not been any systematic or systemic research on the impact of the Gates Foundation on international news content. One way in which the Gates Foundation clearly influences news content is that it creates a perceived conflict of interest in doing the news. Because, of course, you're getting funded, are you likely to criticize the people who are funding you? Are you likely to criticize someone you're going to seek a grant from? Not likely. Indeed, they note that the reluctance of Gates-funded journalists to critique the foundation is significant, given its enormous power in the public health sector. As they note, the donations to the World Health Organization make them bigger than every government other than the United States. In terms of its, and of course, in the United States, many of the people that have an influence with how that money is utilized by the World Health Organization are people also with ties to the Gates Foundation or ties or want to have ties to the Gates Foundation. So that's just one example of one of the few studies documenting and detailing the scope and scale of influence the Gates Foundation has in shaping the news about the Gates Foundation. That's why you're seeing all of these fact checks going on where there, uh, anybody that questions or criticizes the Gates Foundation has a fact check saying mostly false, pants on fire, even when they're often not actually checking facts. They're often checking a caricatured version of, uh, of an issue. And when they do do the facts, they actually don't do the full facts and remove context. As just one example, as the Corbett Report documented, there had been a major problem related to polio vaccines in India. Well, they supportedly, a bunch of these fact-checking organizations with ties to the Gates Foundation, including Africa Check and others, quote-unquote debunked this 
But when you get into detail and you dig in a little bit deeper, you find that they actually didn't debunk it at all. They didn't even really meaningfully address it because there are scientific studies put out by prominent doctors in India, printed by even traditional uh, mainstream establishments in India that detailed the problem that was reported in the Corbett report. They don't talk about that. Uh, instead, they give a misleading misimpression to people uh, because they are effectively the gatekeepers of the institutional narrative, and it's the institutions that are funding them to make sure the narrative stays that way. So the next time you see a PolitiFact that relates to the Gates Foundation, recognize that what you are seeing was brought and paid to you, brought and paid for by Bill Gates. In other news, we have the continuing culture war taking crazier and crazier paths. For example, the San Francisco will no longer release mugshots because it's somehow racist. Now, how could that be? Only if, in fact, there's a disproportionate number of people of a particular group that may be having mugshots released. But that's relevant factual information. So now the mugshots of people who may be dangerous no longer will be available because, heck, that might lead people to draw a factual conclusion about something that the city of San Francisco doesn't want them to be able to do. In the same vein, a scholar was forced to resign over a study that found police shootings are not biased, don't have a racial bias behind them. The uh, article from the College Fix details how Michigan State University leaders successfully pressured Stephen Hsu to resign from his position as Vice President of Research and Innovation after the Graduate Employees Union launched a campaign to oust him from his role. This came after the union, which represents teaching and research assistants. By the way, a little side story. I was part of that uh, representing a student, a graduate employees union at the University of Wisconsin. And it was very unsettling how almost everybody that was part of that effort had an ideological agenda that had nothing to do with actually improving the well-being of teaching and research assistants. In fact, they were more focused on making sure certain select politically favored groups got certain benefits, even if it came at the direct cost of the material improvement for most teaching and research assistants. So not surprised that a graduate employees union would be connected to this. The, uh, the, the union basically went through years of blog posts and interviews Sue had conducted and criticized him for sharing content about issues related to race, including issues related to whether or not there is uh, actual evidence of bias uh, against in, in police uh, shootings and other issues. Indeed, as he pointed out, Sue said, the GEU alleged that I am a racist because I interviewed a psychology professor who studies police shooting. But his work is similar to Roland Fryer at Harvard, whose work we've often uh, discussed on this show. It simply is essential to understanding deadly force and how to improve policing. And that their conclusion was there is no widespread racial bias in police shooting. For so for simply making, letting people know that information, he has now had to be removed from his job. That is the sort of institutional, gated institutional control they're willing to do. In that same context, they've also done the same thing in the social media world and continue to as they remove the Donald from the Reddit, a, a message, the, the most pro-Trump populist 
message board on Reddit and and redefined hate speech to basically include anything they didn't like or disagree with politically on Reddit and how it's expansive interpretation it was. But in the same vein, they removed entirely overnight without notice Stefan Molyneux's uh, YouTube show. So he puts up videos on YouTube, mostly doesn't get much money from them. It's just a way of distributing his ideas and information. One of the most popular content creators on YouTube by a long mile. Millions of followers, subscribers, and views. Literally probably maybe up to 100 million plus views probably if you look at all of his videos that he's put up over the years. He had never violated any of the terms of service. He had never been given any notice of any kind that he had done anything wrong in any way, shape, or form. Just suddenly, summarily, woke up, and his entire channel was gone, vanished. And it wasn't just his ability to reach people. It's everyone who had ever saved or stored a Stefan Molyneux video no longer had access to it. Completely gone. The biggest political philosophy site on YouTube disappeared overnight. The way they used to disappear people in Argentina. Or the way Stalin would disappear people from photographs. retrospectively after he decided to kill them. That is the nature of the gated institutional narrative. Not only has it been collusively corrupted with the Gates kind of control and groups like Gates and the Open Society and others' ability to influence, shape, and direct what you hear, what you see, so that they can control what you think and what you know, but it's going to an even greater degree that any dissident information is like what they did to the street preacher in Chaz, like what they did to the flag waver in Chaz, like what they did to the investigative reporter in Chaz, they have been banished from the public square without notice, without any sense of due process, without any sense of freedom of speech or freedom of thought, because they don't believe in either. They see both as a threat. They want to keep those gates high in the gated institutional narrative. Now, one story you probably haven't heard a lot about relates to what the Fed, and what the uh, bank regulators are doing. Some years ago, uh, we put in uh, something that they've called the Volcker Rule, and the goal of the Volcker Rule, named after a former Fed chairman, was to prevent the banks from speculating in the stock market and other activities, or at least limiting the scope and scale to which they did so. Well, guess what? June 25th, 2020, uh, CNBC uh, has an article up that talks about it, and only briefly mentions it, and most of the mainstream press hasn't gone into detail about it at all. But guess what they've done? They're removing the main effectiveness and impact and constrictions of the vocal rule. So this this appears to be a plan or a plot to boost the stock market, uh, even if it comes at the expense of the public treasury, even if it comes at expense of ordinary people. So what's happening is it appears to be by any means possible, by any means necessary, between the Fed printing and now this removal of the vocal rule so that banks can flood capital back into the stock market, they're going to keep the stock market for the protected privileged class as high as possible, even if it does not result in any economic well-being for ordinary people, even if it increases the boom-bust cycle that we've started to witness over the last two decades, even if it leads to much greater wealth inequality that is often the predicate for of social unrest that leads to things like rioting and looting. Indeed, for example, just to give you an example, food prices have risen uh, 
extraordinarily. In fact, food prices are up to the highest level they've been in 50 years when adjusted for inflation. The fastest rise in food prices we've seen in half a century. And while that's happening, the federal authorities and FDIC are busy loosening restrictions on the Volcker Rule to allow banks to make a whole bunch of big capital investments in venture capital. In fact, the companies will be able to avoid setting aside cash for derivative trades. So we're back. they say it's going to free up billions and maybe even trillions of dollars. So while food prices skyrocket, rioting and looting fills the streets, lockdown economics prevents a lot of people from their job and crushes a lot of small businesses, what is the Fed and the FDIC doing? They're funneling more and more and more money to the stock market and for those privileged and politically protected classes that get the most rewards from the stock market. It's the it's that kind of information. I got that information because I follow a lot of independent sources. And so while this was covered in the business press, it didn't achieve nearly the degree of attention that it needed to. While people were protesting, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street crowd was busy with its CHAZ mandates. The Fed and the uh, FDIC are back to giving big banks huge uh, incentives to pump up and increase the bubble of the stock market, particularly and especially. Indeed, the U.S. Treasury has about $1.6 bucks sitting in its own special Fed account that it may use to funnel in or take out money effectively from the marketplace that can greatly influence the 2020 election. So while everybody's distracted by the lockdown economics and the looting rioters, they're missing that the Fed and the FDIC are up to reshaping the entire economy and our public policy to line their pockets once again. Because that ultimately is what the institutional narrative helps promote and protect. It helps promote and protect the privileged classes in order to ensure that information like wealth continues to be unequally distributed, with some left in the shadows, in the dark, outside the gated castles, away from the value of true information and real economic well-being. That's what, in the end, it's often all about. Thanks for joining us for this uh, edition of American Countdown. Join us uh, again next week after the July 4th holiday. Hopefully some of you will go out and celebrate and enjoy and participate. And a reminder that the greatest experiment in liberty, the greatest experiment in constitutional democracy, the greatest experiment in giving power to the people, real power, is the United States of America. And when we go out on July 4th, that is what we celebrate. That is what we participate in. That is what we enjoy. That is what we remember. And so let it be so again this weekend. Thanks for joining us. When do you think the people should be able to like talk again? The pe- the deep oh, person. Oh yeah, 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 that's a good pr- that's a good question. Um, well, Alex Jones at least has Infowars.com. He could do yeah, his own thing, own. and people go to that. And Gavin's got a show still. Does he? Yeah, you know, as someone who's kind of for all for free speech, I often get told that I'm bad because I and I have to defend people whose 
language I don't agree with. That is what free speech is. It's not defending everyone who says things that I love. It doesn't make any sense because that means you're right all the time. Like if you're only defending the things that you believe in, yeah, you, you write all the time about everything. But I have to defend the people who say things that are even atrocious and that I can't, I would never get on board with because in that's what free speech is. Otherwise, yes. and like you said, it is that slippery slope of who gets to be the arbiter of what is said. Right. And what are your what are your guidelines? Alex Jones is funny than Andy Kaufman's ever been. Alex Jones is f-ing hilarious. Often. Did you see often. the whole Bill H- that he's Bill Hicks? Yeah, no, conspiracy. That's not real. I went down that, that rabbit hole. So, that's the silliest shit. Ever. I know, but there are videos. But he had a one thing <laughs> we're talking about, like if uh, it's between his family starving or eating his neighbor. He, oh, he's I know. Like, I'll eat your ass. I and thought... so it became this. Gig- Come on. I will eat your ass. Do you don't think there's an entertainment value in him saying he's going to eat my his neighbor? Fire. Right, but there's something to that, like to to stop that and ban that. You're you're not. You're not stopping anyone from you're not stopping anybody from anything bad by not having Alex do this entertaining thing about eating his neighbor. You're not saving anybody. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you gotta, you, you gotta. Like, what are you doing? Like, what is he doing that's so awful? I don't know how to fix any of it. This, it's it's entertaining. Like, why is it only acceptable if you have some kind of entertainment? Because there's so many rap videos that you could watch that I enjoy, but they're talking about shooting people and robbing people, and it's everywhere on YouTube. Yeah. It's so prevalent. Yeah. And somehow or another, that's okay. Like, it's f***ing weird what's allowed and what's not allowed. Hey guys, Rob Dew here with InfoWarsStore.com, and I want to tell you about something that I think has really helped me out, and I think can help you out too, especially if you have any problems sleeping, and that's knockout. Let's face it, our life patterns have been disrupted by this lockdown, this government-imposed imprisonment, and it has definitely affected my sleep schedule. But one thing that has helped is knockout. I take one pill about an hour before I want to go to bed, and boom, I get a great night's sleep. And just this past Memorial Day, I took two of them, fell asleep about 1 a.m., woke up at 8 a.m., 
ready to go. It really has made a difference in my life and it can make a difference in your life too. If you don't get any sleep, you're going to be a grouch. If you get great sleep, you're going to be on point. You're going to be mentally focused. You're going to be ready to take on the day. And right now, Knockout is 50% off. It's less than $15 a bottle. You get 30 capsules. Give it a try today. It's at a great price right now and it can really help you get the sleep you need, especially in these tough times. It's Knockout and it's available at InfoWarsStore.com. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. Your government thanks you for your participation. We played a lot of purge games this evening. We have just one more. It's called Mommy's Choice. Which one of you will survive this year's purge? The soul of our country is at stake. The purge targets the poor and the innocent. Blessed be America for letting us purge and cleanse our souls. Join me as we eliminate evil. Purge and It's finally here. Introducing the new Survival Shield X2 Spray. Available now for 33% off at InfoWarsStore.com. Listeners have been asking us for months to develop an iodine spray made with our exclusive Deep Earth Crystal Nascent Iodine. Our proprietary new Aerodyne technology allows us to harness the full power of ancient iodine crystals from 7,000 feet below the Earth's surface into the ultimate spray formula. Iodine is an essential mineral that helps support thyroid health, healthy metabolism, and healthy cognitive function. Get the new Survival Shield X2 spray for 33% off intro pricing at InfoWarsStore.com. That's Survival Shield X2 spray at InfoWarsStore.com.